Hello, everybody. Good morning here in Boston and uh, good afternoon if you're in a different time zone. My name is Damian Shield. I'm the senior director at the Center for Medical Simulation, leading our faculty development programs and hosting our weekly webinars. It's my pleasure and privilege to say hello to all of you. We launched this series uh, around the time of the stay at home orders here in Boston, socially distancing, but uh, not being alone and staying connected um, as a community of practitioners in healthcare simulation, in process improvement and in education. That was our main goal and it was important for us to, um, to have that forum, a, a worldwide community building forum where we could continue connecting. And so uh, we spend a few weeks working on strategy and positioning of our programs and also understanding the particular importance of experiential learning in the healthcare setting and positioning of reflective practice to improve healthcare and outcomes. And today we turn towards working on a roadmap to relevance, the SimZones curriculum and preparing people, teams, and systems. It's very exciting that Mary Fay and Chris Rusin are with us today to present. Uh, I'm really looking forward to their uh, adaptation and uh, narrative around how we create and implement a system of training that gets us ready for practice. So without further ado, I'll hand over to them. I'll ask them to introduce themselves in a little more uh, detail so you know their background and current roles and then take us for the, um, for the program. I'll be in the background monitoring the Q&A. You have a button at the bottom of your screen where you are welcome to pose questions and we'll be answering them uh, throughout the conversation and it'll be very helpful to guide uh, where we take the program. So please uh, don't hesitate to put comments and questions there and we'll answer them as we go. Chris, Mary, okay, turning it over to you. Thank you, Damien. Thank you so much. Good morning, everybody. I'm Mary Fay. I'm a nurse by background and a currently the Senior Director for Teaching and Learning at the Center for Medical Simulation. And um, I'm excited to be here today to talk about um, SimZones because as I've gotten um, more steeped in learning about SimZones and how the framework um, can help us think about curriculum and faculty development, it's really influenced our thinking at the Center for Medical Simulation and how we deliver our courses. And we also had the opportunity to work with um, a hospital group in Texas recently to do a curriculum all around SimZones to help them think about new graduate nurse transition to practice. And so SimZones is really an exciting uh, framework that's applicable in, in a lot of situations. And I'm super happy to be here with you, my friend, this morning. Chris, if you want to introduce yourself. Thanks, Mary. I'm Chris Rusin, Senior Director for Educational Leadership and International Programs at the Center for Medical Simulation. By training, I'm an organizational behaviorist and org psychologist. Uh, think a lot about how people learn, think a lot about how people relate, and how we can create systems of learning and progressions of learning that are most effective and most positive for people and for organizations. And uh, yeah, today our, our, our session is called Roadmap to Relevance, and what, what we're really trying to help you with today, and we're really passionate about ourselves, is how to make simulation and experiential learning not just relevant to everyday performance, 
in hospitals and universities, med schools, nursing schools, but really central and foundational to the operation and the performance of these organizations. And so we're going to talk about how SIM zones is a curricular, very powerful curricular tool to help you become relevant and to help learning become central to the success of organizations. Uh, a little bit of credit up front, um, Mary, in addition to uh, Peter Weinstock and the team at Boston Children's Hospital, um, who co-developed the original SimZones model with me. And uh, it's been very useful, so thank you folks. Okay, so let's tell a couple stories to kick this off about hospitals and about schools. So what you see here is a picture of a patient in a pediatric hospital um, in a high-risk situation starting to exhibit behaviors that could harm himself or could potentially harm others. And this is a high-risk situation. It's a very challenging situation for the hospital and requires a really high-skilled team-based reaction. Um, something that might happen is we try to de-escalate this patient and if this situation continues as it is or continues to escalate, ultimately you need a team-based response, including the security staff at the hospital teaming up with many different types of clinicians, social workers, doctors and nurses from different places, maybe a behavioral response team. And this might escalate into a restraint of the patient. Very, very challenging, very high risk and potentially dangerous. Um, and requires a tremendous amount of preparation to get right and to do consistently. And typically in our hospitals, we don't have enough preparation around this extremely difficult, extremely team-based and, and dispersed uh, task. And so it really leaves us with the question, Mary, of how do we best become ready as individuals and as a team and as an organization to, to best take care of these patients. So we have this question of readiness. How do we get ready? No. You know, Chris, that's a, that is a great example of a high-risk situation and readiness in a hospital. You know, my background is um, nursing education more in the academic world. And when I think about readiness there, I really think about readiness for practice. How do we make sure that our nursing students or our medical students are actually ready for practice when they get out? And so, I think about my days as an ICU nurse and I was a cardiac ICU nurse and, and, and think of it like a patient with cardiogenic shock who has very tenuous sort of fluid balance yet they need IV fluids. They're usually on powerful inotropic drugs to help their contractility and their blood pressure. And it's such a high risk situation to make sure that this all gets delivered safely. So we think about the IVs and the IV pump and yet the skills that nurses apply to this high-risk situation go so far beyond just the equipment. And really what we have to get the nurses ready to do is manage the complex care of a patient that may need multiple different powerful drugs infusing through the IV that maybe have a very tenuous fluid balance status because of their heart failure. And so how does the nurse coordinate all that? And as the hub of the team, communicate all of the information to all the other practitioners? How do we get that person ready for a complex job like that? Big questions. Big questions. And we know that, yeah, it, it, the, the incredible thing and something that we talk about all the time is, is the fact that we often don't bring simulation to these challenges and to these problems in all the ways that, that would be best. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll say simulation and I'll say experiential learning more broadly. Um, so some of the language we'll use today is to talk about a partnership problem between simulation and between the hospital and between simulation capabilities and the med school and the nursing school. And today we can talk about this partnership problem and we can admit that we have it and that we are not currently bringing simulation in optimal ways to solve these problems and that it remains a challenge and that a large part of the challenge is around partnership between the simulation organization or sub team and the greater organization. So we'll talk today about tools and language that we can use to close this partnership problem. Mm-hmm. But first, let's explore it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I, you know, I, like, I love the framing as partnership because I think it just really highlights the importance of making sure that the simulation program is not doing its thing in isolation from all the other parts of the organization so that you can really optimize the power of simulation. So I love thinking about all of the people involved and getting them all together. Mm, agreed. Let's explore this partnership problem just a little bit more deeply. So this is a bit like where's Waldo? Um, Can you spot the patient in this picture? We have that beautiful tiny baby in this room, in this this ICU room, and we're trying to take best care of this baby. But look at all of the technology in this room. Um, Look at all the cords and cables and bags hanging and clutter and when i see this room i think about all the potential for things to go right of course because we have the right technology available i mean this is incredible Um, but i also think about the potential for things to go wrong in this room Um, for something to come unplugged or be set incorrectly or for the person who just left and the person who's just arriving to have different understandings of how that room is supporting that patient. And it makes me just think, how can we get ready in this environment to take care of this baby and do so in the best possible way and in the most consistent way over time? Mary, yeah, here's another environment. This is an interventional radiology team at work. And it's a simulation, but they're in their real work environment. And I think about all the incredible technology here. But again, I think about how difficult this room layout makes it for the team to operate at a high level. The the proceduralists are looking at the screen and no one is looking at the patient. Um, The anesthesia staff is actually located, you know, seven or eight feet behind the proceduralists. So none of these, um, none of these clinicians are able to make eye contact with one another. The technologists in the room are standing off to the side or behind the banks of technology and behind the screens. And so it's just a really challenging environment for this team. And of course, a tremendous amount of preparation, both to learn all the skills involved, but especially the teamwork and coordination skills for this team. How how can they work on teamwork? How how can we get them ready such that they're consistent and always um, monitoring that patient and taking great care of that patient? And you know, Chris, it's funny, your, your two pictures show these incredibly complex environments. Mm-hmm. And when I think about nursing schools, um, we often have a more traditional approach to education, which is fill them with content, give them a test. Once they pass the test, they will somehow magically know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I would argue for in nursing education, making things maybe a little more complex by taking all those things we're teaching them in the classroom and embedding them in a real context in the simulation lab or in their 
regular clinical rotations. And, you know, as I say that, it makes so much sense to me that, of course, well-placed simulation in a curriculum will lead to better outcomes. So why do we even have a partnership problem? Why is it that sim programs often operate in isolation and are not solving the problems of the hospital? And, you know, I think some of it comes back to the relationships, how we communicate with, it, with each other, how we advocate and describe our simulation curriculum, who we work with as we develop curriculum. Mm -hmm. And Mary, when I, I used to be a, a university business school professor, and when I, when I look at these students in the classroom, I think about the history of how we've run our schools. And, you know, it's, it's a positive history. It's a proud history. But it has its norms built into it. And I think one of the challenges with the partnership problem in schools is how do we um, how do we fit really well-designed simulation curricula and experiences into the rhythms of a university environment, into the rhythms of a nursing school environment? And how do we do that in a way that feels right and comfortable and appropriate as opposed to kind of cramming it in there? Mm -hmm. so let's, let's, let's explore it. So we're here to talk about our roadmap to relevance for simulation. And we're going to reframe that a bit and, and describe this roadmap to relevance as a roadmap to readiness that we can create with the hospital, with the nursing school, with the medical school. Mm -hmm. And if we can really start to take that view of what does it mean for a person to be ready? What does it mean for a team to be ready, for a group to be ready? And how can we describe that? And then how can we serve that with simulation courses, programs, and curriculum? So Chris, I am going to ask you to take this word readiness, which seems like a pretty sensible word, but I, I think it means something even deeper in this context and talk a little bit about how you see the process of getting a hospital in a position where it's continuously ready for whatever demands might be placed on it, or even in a, in, even in a school of nursing or medicine, how do we create ready practitioners so that when they graduate, they can hit the ground running to provide safe, high quality patient care. Okay, thank right. you. I'll take that challenge. Okay. Um, let's, let's start this way. If we're thinking about solving the problems of the healthcare organization in terms of readiness, the first thing that we need to do is have our ears and our eyes on, um, in, in the conversations about what people need to learn, um, what are the priorities of the moment? What do we need to be capable of as an organization? What do we need to be ready for as an organization? In my prior to Center for Medical Simulation, I was the education director at the Boston Children's Hospital simulation program. And we were often thinking about what do newly hired nurses in the ICU need to know to be ready to practice in the ICU? Um, if we want a nurse to be able to practice across multiple ICUs in the hospital, how can we get those nurses ready? And I realized that as I was engaging in conversations with clinical leadership, this term readiness was coming out a lot. Um, we talked about ECMO, this very difficult and complex um, bedside heart-lung bypass. And once I heard a very senior person at the hospital say, how do we know that we're ready to do ECMO at our, at our standards? And so these readiness conversations are always happening and we need to find a way to be in the room for them or be on the Zoom call, um, or on the email thread, or in the M&M, such that we are hearing the conversations about what is essential to the hospital at that moment, or what is essential to the nursing school. I know requirements are always changing around 
certification, readiness to practice. Um, it, with the COVID crisis, we, we saw a situation where we had a world of healthcare um, and the priorities shifted overnight almost from one set of priorities to another set of priorities. How are we hearing about that? Are we in the room as problem solvers to hear uh, those new priorities described and to be part of the solution plan? So the first thing to do is get into the room, listen, have the relationships with the people that are having the conversations. And once we hear these things, now we can start to imagine our toolkit as interventionists, as people who build um, courses and programs, we can think about partnering with the same people that have the needs. And I'll just ask you to click once here, Mary, and we can respond with the right type of simulation based program to address the need of the moment. And those programs, we'll talk a lot about this in the next few minutes, those programs might be skill building programs. Again, we have an, an especially large class of newly hired nurses. They all need to acquire these skills in a short period of time and they need to be consistent in their understanding and, and their doing of those skills. So maybe it's a skill building simulation. Maybe it's situational competencies. How do we manage, how do we recognize and manage septic shock and do that consistently across the organization? Um, or maybe it's modes of continuous development of teams and systems, whether that's in simulation or whether that's associated with our real work. So we can respond as a learning organization once we know what's happening and what's most important. And then I'll ask you to click again. What, what are we doing after that? We're monitoring outcomes, mutually agreed upon outcomes, and we're seeing how these interventions influence outcomes. And then this becomes a bit of a loop of how we operate as a simulation organization. If you think of it as a readiness loop, we're always keeping the organization ready if we're listening to what's important, responding with customized programs and monitoring outcomes. How's that, Mary? You know, Chris, the one thing I was thinking as, as you were talking about the outcomes and, you know, and the importance of having a clear roadmap to, to high level functioning is um, one of the changes happening in nursing schools right now is that radical change in the format of the licensure exam. And how because of that, there's much more of an emphasis on really developing judgment skills. And in my mind, this is the roadmap to take people from just being able to do something to actually really being able to integrate it into the complexities of the care environment. So as I think about outcomes, especially I think about, you know, the nursing licensure exam and how we're going to have to revamp curriculums. And this gives us such a great roadmap to do that. I'm going to move on. Yeah, let's move on. Okay. So I want to say a few things about partnership. Um, we use this word a little bit so far and just want to emphasize it a bit more. So the simulation program or the learning organization needs to very closely partner with the clinical organization or the um, med school, the nursing school leadership. So Mary, I'll ask you to click. So before we develop simulation courses, before we come up with these great ideas, the first thing that we need to reiterate what we just talked about is relationships with people, access to conversations and sources of current information around what's important and what's needed so that we can understand in clear language and using the language of others, not our own language, problems, capability gaps, skill gaps, performance gaps, and the risks that are associated with those gaps. 
And only then can we do what we crave to do as simulation organizations, which is start to design learning objectives. And um, I'll just ask you to click again. Can I make one comment before I click? Oh, please. please, yeah. So I, I, you, you said something there that I just want to highlight, Chris, which is that we, we need to understand it really in the, in the language of other people. Because I think often with every good intention, um, we simulationists um, make a decision about what could be a valuable simulation, and yet we could be missing the mark as far as the organization is concerned. And so especially within the school context, I think of the importance of the curriculum committee. They have their finger on the pulse of where are the gaps in the curriculum, where, where are we not meeting learning needs with traditional clinical rotations or, or clerkships. And so really seeing it through the eyes of the other people, I think can save a lot of missteps along the way and add more value to the whole program. Yeah, beautifully said. So we can use various tools. We, we have a tool at, at Center for Medical Simulation called a developmental map that we use to document these gaps. So as we have these conversations, we write it down. And you know, what's the skill gap? What's the capability gap? What's the performance gap? What's the risk associated with that gap? so that we understand the importance of the problem. And that helps us prioritize creating courses and creating interventions. And it also gives us a documentation of learning gaps and the need for simulation programs and other types of interventions. Mary, just one more click here. Only after all of this do we get into clever curriculum design. And I just wanna say that um, oftentimes our you know, people say, can you design a simulation curriculum? Can you, no, can you design a simulation scenario to solve this problem? And I say, well, wait, let's understand the problem first. Let's make sure that we deeply understand the problem. And we look at it from a variety of angles and that we talk to all the people associated with the problem. And only then can we do this thing that we're tempted to do, which is take a simulation scenario and attach it as a solution. And I, a lot of our, we have this amazing technology in, in the simulation world. Um, and a lot of the technology providers are, are promoting mannequins and scenarios that go along with those mannequins. And so it can be very tempting to start with the scenario, but really, really important instead to hold off on that until we understand the problem, create the learning objectives, and then get into the design of the scenario and the overall curriculum. We can click through here, Mary. So, so what we're leading you to here, folks, is the value of creating readiness plans. And of course, now we're going to talk about soccer. <laughs> because why not? Why wouldn't we talk about soccer now? Because this is a webinar about soccer, right? Right. 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 Welcome to the soccer webinar. So we'll talk about soccer or football for the people who live in the, the places that originated the sport. And let's look at a readiness plan for a continuously ready and winning soccer team and organization. <clears throat> All right, so how, another way of putting this is, how can we always be ready to win soccer games? Okay, and so we can imagine that we need to build skills and practice skills and master skills. And here's a list of those skills that we need, of course, passing, shooting, defense, goalie skills, how to move on the field, how to be in shape, how to throw the ball in, communicating as we play, all the basic skills. But we also need to master situational competencies to be a winning soccer organization. Corner kicks. How do we position the team? How do we execute a perfect corner kick plan such that we score a goal? And we might have five or six or more different configurations of how we do that. Direct kicks, indirect kicks, playing with one less player than the other team. 
trying to score in limited time, playing against specific offenses and defenses. These are all situations that we need to master as a soccer organization to win. And then we need ways of continuously developing. So we have all of our practice and rehearsal, but we can also get better by thinking about how a game went, talking after the game and thinking about how that went. We can actually talk before and after practices to talk about how we went and continuously improve. And in soccer, in the world of professional soccer, there are friendly matches that don't matter for the standings, but they're an opportunity for the team to experiment with different mixes of players, try different offenses out, different defenses, and, and use those friendly matches as a learning experience. And so if you, now if you look at this whole plan and what we're holding in our hand, if this were paper, is a readiness plan to be continuously ready to win soccer games. And this probably resembles the readiness plan that professional sports organizations do use as they continuously train their teams. Mm -hmm. so I think Chris, as I look at this, one of the things that you didn't say, but comes through clearly in looking at this is the many different roles that the mentors or coaches or teachers play mm -hmm. as this goes on from building skills up to the continuous development. I love that, Mary. Yeah, so as we're building skills, you are teaching. Mm -hmm. And you are um, guiding, you're coaching, you're instructing, you're refining with professionals, you're refining with, with um, youth players, you're teaching and, and um, instructing. And then for situational competencies, it's more guiding, suggesting you might be actually asking the players what's working for them and using that to refine a plan. Yeah, yeah. So you need these different sorts of interaction okay. skills, teaching, facilitation, right. coaching. Right. Well put. right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm going to do an example of readiness for practice in, say, a nursing school. Okay. It's a little bit more of a sort of a clinical twist. And so in thinking about how do I get this person who's never been a nurse before ready to be a nurse in, in a few years, of course, we'll start with some foundational skills. So let's think about common foundational skills that are taught early in nursing school, like how do I operate oxygen devices? Yeah. Um, how do I perform a head-to-toe physical assessment and recognize different types of lung sounds? How do I take an accurate health history so I understand um, risks that my patient brings in with them because of their health history? Yep. And then all the different communication skills that happen, both from nurse to patient, nurse to nurse, nurse to other members of the healthcare team. And, and in the first semester of nursing school, they often are taught in isolation with sort of limited contextual features around them because they need to be at that stage of the game. But then as nurses progress through the curriculum and through their clinical experiences and also um, potentially in the simulation lab, now we up the complexity a little bit by now asking them to prioritize care for a patient with respiratory distress where 10 different things have to be done and it's critical that the nurse understands in what order things need to be done to keep the patient safe. Sometimes there's a skill of while you're assessing and caring for the patient, also having to think about what's causing this. So for example, if the respiratory distress was from anaphylactic shock, from um, an allergic reaction to an antibiotic, the nurse has to know number one thing to do, turn off that antibiotic quickly. There's also a really important role in the nurse of understanding when he or she needs to mobilize different members of the healthcare team and who are they? Do I need all of them? Do I need certain ones? But mobilizing some sort of a response to help the patient. And then we may drill down on those communication skills to really help them think about SBAR communication to help the rest of the team. And then as nurses move towards the la later semester of, of nursing school, 
and we think about how do we really continuously now develop them and develop that clinical judgment so that they're ready for practice, we can use simulation for continuing to teach, but also assessing or testing their clinical judgment skills. All of the skills and the, the applying skills to situations may have happened with a uni professional team just with other nursing students. And now we need to broaden that out and start thinking about the other teamwork skills that are so important to nursing practice and developing those relationships and understanding the best way to communicate with the other people on the team who have very different perspectives than the perspective of the nursing students. And then, as you mentioned before, with the soccer team, and, and so it's the same with nursing or medical students, is debriefing or reflective learning conversations that happen not just in simulation, but also after clinical rotations to really help them integrate the learning that came from the experience they just had. And, you know, by following this progression through, by increasing the complexity and broadening the scope of practice, that's how we can get to a place where we have new practitioners now who actually are ready for practice. Mm. I love it. I love it. I, I love the idea of um, near the end of a nursing education, giving opportunities to join a team and act out care in a, in a fully realized simulation environment with other team members and have an opportunity to explore that, discuss that, debrief that, and develop some comfort with that. Obviously, it can never match the exact environment of what you're headed to, but the comfort can be so much better. And also developing skills around asking for feedback related to your real practice once you do arrive in your new environment, which is such an underappreciated skill and we don't see nearly enough of it. Yeah. Such a great point, such a great point. So I'm thinking, let's go back and revisit the behavioral health situation from the beginning, Chris, and let's walk through a readiness plan for that. Sure, and this is something I've actually done in the past. Um, so how you remember that behavioral health case from the very first slide where we have a patient who um, could possibly harm themselves, could possibly harm others, possibly needs to be restrained in a team-based restraint that hopefully is carried out very safely and very respectfully, despite how difficult it is. Um, and we need to think about how that team might continuously develop itself and the way that it does such things over time. So let's think about some skills that we might need, basic skills. Um, those would include attempts at de-escalation at the beginning of such moments, um, the basics of safe restraint, the basics of teamwork and cross-monitoring. I think about the challenges in these kinds of teams and these really, really emotional moments of noticing how your teammate is doing and giving that person an opportunity to actually leave the team and have someone else come in. I know that's something that's been really, really valuable in the past in these kinds of teams. Of course, calling for help, building the team, making the team larger, bringing in specialized um, resources. There are basic skills at the heart of each of these things that can be learned. And then when I think about applying skills to situations for that team, recognizing the need for a behavioral response team if there's one available at a hospital, how do we recognize, how do we initiate the communication to do that? And then how do we join that team once it arrives? All very challenging, including security personnel who are not clinicians and who might be more anxious um, and might, might not quite understand how all the various clinicians are looking at things. Um, and of course, as a team, recognizing the need for restraint, um, the use of restraint and doing that as a team and doing so again, respectfully and safely um, and in ways that don't cause physical trauma and don't cause um, or that limit emotional trauma. 
and how does that team continuously develop itself? Sim testing the process. So once we have a process designed for this team in a way that we think we're going to work, we can actually invite the team. This is not something we do to the team. This is something we do with the team. Invite the team in. Hey, we've designed this process. We think we have a way of working. Now let's do it together in a simulated way. Let's evaluate it together and let's think about what we still need to improve. Do we need changes to our environment? Do we need changes to our teamwork? Are there tools or resources that we need? Um, and of course, debriefing real events, creating a safe environment and a non-blaming environment through which we can have conversations about this after we do it and really support one another through those conversations and get better. So there's, there's our readiness plan for that behavioral response team. And imagine how soothing and valuable this would be for a hospital to have this plan um, when they've been having trouble with this extremely difficult type of, of situation. And you know, Chris, one of the things I really like about sim zones is is the the link or the connections that are made from learning in a lab to getting better at real life. You know, because even though we're all simulationists, we don't want people to be good in simulation. We want people to be good in real life. Um, so, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the readiness plan and, and this progression. I think it would be helpful if we drilled down into the sim zones in, in a little bit more detail. So that sounds good, Mary. And I just want to take a moment to let everybody know, first of all, we're so grateful that you're with us. Um, there is a Q&A link at the bottom of your screen. And if you have a question or you have a comment, you can click that Q&A link. And we, we actually, we just love to see you type almost anything in there that shows that you're connecting to the um, topic at hand. So I'll put out a query right now to you, which is um, which part of your hospital and school do you think it would be most valuable to partner more deeply with? That's a great question. Uh, yeah, and so just start to type that in. Please don't worry about being perfect with anything that you type in. Um, we, just, we just love it when you put something in there. Okay, Mary, so we're going to now describe for you, to Mary's point, the SimZones system. Okay, so here it is, and it's a big, busy-looking picture, but we're going to show you how to look at this more simply, and ultimately what you're going to end up with is, is an understanding of what it means to design a, a simulation course for Zone 1 or in Zone 1 to serve a particular learning need, or in Zone 2, or in Zone 3, Zone 4, or Zone 0. All right, and we're gonna teach you what those zones are and what their usefulness is to you in, that, in, in your search to become more relevant and part of the problem solving effort at your hospital or at your school. So the first thing, what SimZones is, is the system of matching learners and learning goals or objectives with ideal curriculum designs. Not perfect, but optimized curriculum designs. And we do, we strive for you know, perfection because why not? So the first thing we think about is who's learning. For example, um, we've talked a fair amount about nurses today. Often we have um, cohorts of newly hired nurses coming to our hospital um, or an incoming class of nurses in a nursing school. And, and you could think of these as a group of individuals. They're similar people, maybe similar training. They have similar goals and they need to learn skills. So foundational instruction is the learning of skills. So when we're in, when we're in zone one, we're learning how to do something and we're learning what to do related to particular skill sets. And we're typically doing that with individual learners or with groups of individuals who have similar goals. Sometimes we're doing that with parts of a team, parts of an emergency 
medicine team, parts of an ICU team, maybe just the nurses from those teams, maybe just the fellows from those teams or residents. Um, but let's start to focus on zone one here. In zone one, we need to help a group of people learn foundational skill sets of their occupation, of their practice. Um, and in zone two, we need to help partial teams. Um, for example, the nursing component of an emergency medicine team learn how and what to do related to um, skills in context. So how do we handle the initial recognition of septic shock, for example, something I brought up earlier. Also one of the only things that I know how to say as a non-clinician. <laughs> I'll out myself. Um, so if we, if we want to teach that partial team of an emergency department team how to recognize and manage septic shock in that sub-team, now we're in zone two and we're working with that sub-team and we're teaching them how and what to do related to a situation. In zone three, we're actually helping full teams typically or simulated full teams, um, people who might be a full team someday, we're helping them simulate their full teamwork process and their full work process to explore it as closely simulated to reality as they can and then in a facilitated environment afterwards to explore it in a debriefing understand challenges and innovate solutions. In zone four, we're not talking about simulation anymore. We're talking about how do we learn and develop from our real practice. And I skipped zone zero. In zone zero, we're thinking about how can we use automatic feedback tools, like almost video game-like tools or automatic feedback trainers to learn from, where we don't need an instructor present. So Mary, the next thing we're gonna think about related to curriculum design is our clinical signal and noise. And what we mean by that is how much, if we're talking about cl clinician learners, how much clinical content should we give that learner in that learning moment? So Mary, you know a lot more about this than me related to clinical training, but if someone's learning how to put in an IV, we really only want that partial arm trainer, the IV equipment, a quiet room, and a really qualified instructor that has clear communication with the learner. And now we can explain how to do it. We can give that, we can model for that person how to do it. And then we can give that person the opportunity to do it themselves, to get feedback from the instructor in a really clear way, only thinking about one thing, and then to repeatedly try this thing until they feel like they've developed some mastery of it. And that would be a perfect zone one environment because it's only focuses on one thing, isolated clinical content and has very little distraction. For example, we don't want to bring in beeping machines. We don't want to bring in even the whole body. We don't want to bring in other team members or a yelling family member or a concerned family member, um, competing demands. None of that belongs in zone one. In zone one, we're just getting really clear instruction and, and experiential learning around a skill. So very little distraction and very isolated clinical content. Whereas in zone two, as we start to bundle skills and use them to practice situations, we now need to necessarily bring in complexity, bring in more clinical indicators. For example, the many indicators associated with septic shock, which you can list, but I might not try to. Um, and we also might try to um, bring in some distraction, especially as learners become more advanced with a scenario, um, with a situation. So, okay, they've learned how to do the situation. Now let's bring in a family member and let's teach them how to manage that family member with communication while managing the septic shock. And then as we get into zone three, we want a completely as realistic as we can get feeling simulations such that we can simulate 
real work and we can explore our real work and think about how it's working for us. Now, what do we do for action and debriefing? <clears throat> so one more click, Mary. What do we do as, as the leader of learning? In zone one, we're pausing people, we're giving them corrective feedback, we're giving them opportunities to keep going. So a lot of pause principle happening. In zone two, some pause principle, but we're really working towards uninterrupted action and teaching after the simulation. In zone three, of course, it's uninterrupted action and then debriefing afterwards. And zone four is real life, so it's post-event debriefing. Um, and in zones one and two, the instructor is the master of the material. At the beginning of the course, you say, hey, I'm Professor Rusin, or I'm Chris, and I'm here. I know how to do this thing, and I'm here to teach you how to do it. So my goal is to do that respectfully, and please help me do that with you. That's, that's zone one and two. And in zone three and four, I'm here as a peer, and I'm facilitating, and I'm caretaking, and we're co-developing our team and our system. That's the zones. And so some examples of the words that we use to describe these things, if you just click again, Mary, are you know, procedural skills workshops, clinical orientations in zone one. Often, sometimes clinical orientations have zone one and zone two mixed. In zone two, you know, we used to use this term mock code to describe lots of things, but it's really practicing a situation and learning a situation. I like, I like acute situational training and instruction as a, as a broader term. And then in zones three and four, it's team training and development or system development. All right, that's the zone system. And what this is intended to be is kind of a wall chart or a template that you use to say, who are the learners? What do they need to learn? And then what's the curriculum that we should develop for them to help them learn that thing the best? Mm -hmm. And one thing that we haven't mentioned is that inside of this sim zones chart, if you think back to our previous slides, is the readiness plan. First, we learn skills, then we learn the situations, and then we continuously develop our team and our system over time. Mm -hmm. So the zones are intended to really be a progress of learning and development over time that keeps us continuously ready. You know, and Chris, I, I like the way that the Sim Zones takes into account the cognitive load of the learner. Mm. Because you had mentioned before, when teaching IVs, it's the arm and the cannula. It's not the beeping machines and the noisy family member, you know, and all those other issues. Because at that point in their development, they can't, they don't have the cognitive capacity to manage all that. As they get more familiar and the skills get more automated, then they do have cognitive capacity to bring in more contextual features. And then as that builds and grows and they move into zone three, this is where we really develop the flexibility and adaptability to apply those skills in lots of different ways, according to whatever the situation demands. And that's just so clear across this progression. Great, that's the idea, really clarity and an implied learning progression towards readiness. So if you're part of the faculty for a, for a residency program, if you're part of the faculty for nursing development or a fellowship program, or even responsible for keeping senior staff kind of tuned up and ready and uh, um, preventing skills erosion might be an example with senior staff. You can create these readiness plans and then you can match a zone-based curriculum to make it happen around, make the learning happen. So Mary, let's just kind of click through and, and reiterate a few things in our next few exhibits here. Okay. So zone zero, which we talked about the least, is automatic feedback simulation. You see we have the lap sim machine here. Someone can drop in. Hopefully the door is unlocked. People have access. They can go practice. They have learning objectives. And they get feedback automatically from the tool. 
click through zone one. This is foundational skill instruction. Mary, what do we see here? It looks like what we see here is uh, a student, nursing or medical student, who is learning how to do uh, bag ventilation. Okay, and the student gets an opportunity to interact with the instructor to ask questions, say what feels good, what feels strange, and then have opportunities to refine their technique and then practice repeatedly. And then in zone two, um, this is a, a situation where perhaps a patient needs uh, resuscitation. And so now some of those skills that were built earlier get applied within the context of a real situation. Great, great. And, and again, you might pause that team in zone two, but more typically you're allowing them to do the thing and then you're teaching afterwards. Um, here in zone three, we see a full native team in its native environment practicing using simulation. So they're engaging in their, in their real work, but doing so in a simulated environment. And afterwards, they have a qualified facilitator walking them through what's working, what's difficult, what's challenging, how can we get better? Um, how can we share mental models better? How can we innovate solutions to our team and to our process? And then... You know, Chris, this, and, yeah. and to me, this is always the point at which debriefing becomes a part of organizational quality improvement because i think about the work that's happening with circle up um during covid and the okay. unit-based brief debriefings they have at the end of the shift and how that's driven so much quality improvement and so debriefing isn't just for the practitioners to get better at their skills it's really thinking about how our work together as a team can overall improve the quality of care we give to our patients by sometimes improving the system itself and not just the individuals in the system. Right, beautifully said. And then in zone four, we're doing the same thing, but we're really taking the opportunity to learn and develop after our real patient care. So finding opportunities to debrief after surgeries. Here's some surgical teams debriefing after a day of surgeries. Um, what was challenging for us, what worked well, what contributed to patient safety, what, what created difficulties related to patient safety, and how can we improve as a team? So that's the zones system and some examples. Yeah, yeah we can go ahead and click through. And sim zones are, this is not a theoretical system, it's in, they're in use around the world in many, many hospitals um, as a tool to organize different types of learning, to create these learning progressions towards, towards readiness, and also to organize kind of activity of a simulation program as it gets more relevant and as it grows. <laughs> so once you get to the point where your simulation program is supporting several simulations per day, or you have many colleagues across the organization all doing simulation and they want to learn from one another, sim zones can really help organize that activity. Mm -hmm. So we're getting uh, close to wrapping up here, Chris. So a few more thoughts about this partnership problem and how do we, how do we build the bridge? Yeah, so my closing thoughts are, what are your next steps? I think we wanna help you design an experiment for yourself. Um, I think that was, that's what was most useful for me in the past as I did this within one hospital. Um, I started by thinking about what was my next partnership move? What was the next conversation that I wanted to have? And if I developed trust and an opportunity to have conversations with people, now I could start to have that readiness planning conversation with those very same people. 
And the moment that we created those readiness plans and we had a shared understanding of what they were, it created tremendous enthusiasm to do the training. Mm-hmm. And now we had the fun problem to have, which is, okay, let's go build a SIM course. Let's go build two SIM courses. Um, so what, so folks out there, we'd love to ask you, what, what will your experiment be? What might the next move be that you take? And we'd love to see you. This is inspiring for Mary and I. Um, if you put that into the Q&A, what might be your next move that you're going to make? It could be a very small move. You know, Chris, as I was just listening to you describe, you know, forming these partnerships, it occurred to me that the skills that make me a good debriefer make me a good partner in this, which is number one, not thinking that I have all the answers. And number two, being really curious about how other people are seeing situations and those skills are perfectly transferable. And I think like debriefing, approaching any of these problems with curiosity about the other person and respect for them as an intelligent person who's trying to do the best for all the patients we care for Mm. is gonna put us in the same place on the same page so that we can build meaningful partnerships together. Mm. And I just, um, well said, Mary, and I I noticed that there's um, an old friend from a hospital in Argentina who uses sim zones, who is just weighing in and saying, hello, hello, my old friend. Yeah. And there's a question here, how can we manage if we have very limited resources in terms of partnership, like lack of training? And um, so we'll address that question in a moment. I think that's a really great question. Damien, can we invite you in? Yeah, thanks, uh, Chris. Uh, Thank you both uh, so far for the fantastic presentation. And um, I'll just share my reflection as as I was listening. I, for me, I think the language of zones gives us choices as a curriculum designer and the language to, to act uh, when those choices are there. So as we identify those gaps with our stakeholders, we can then choose together in partnership our level of attack. Are we going to deal at the skills, basic skills levels, uh, or do we want to be more in context? Do we want to work with the team? So I really appreciate that. My take is that the zones approach is not exclusive or prescriptive and that the educator then will draw from the literature and their experience to say, okay, well, if I want to do a zone one workshop, what are the best practices there? Do I, do I use, uh, which, do I have my own approach? Do I use a published approach? Is it mastery learning? Is it uh, based on a checklist? Is it peer-based learning? Am I innovating, doing something new? Um, so I just really appreciate the the framework and um, and how it could help a simulation leader be ready to help a program be ready mm. for learning and practice. I think um, I'd just like to kick off the last few minutes of discussion with a perhaps a little bit of a provocative question um, because these analytic domains can at times be simplistic. So one of the, I was reminded of of the um, important work from Roger Kneebone where he described perhaps the problem of teaching Foley insertion in isolation. Mm. uh, And I think essentially called for a ban on skills only practice. He argued, uh, I don't remember the exact reference, but he argued that if you teach people how to place the Foley separate from reassuring the patient, explaining the procedure, that that reintegration uh, may never happen. So I was just wondering, 
both of your takes on that problem. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I think that back to the kind of fundamentals of the zones based approach, if you have an opportunity to learn that skill, but as part of the very same planned stream of learning and preparation for readiness, you take your basic learning and now you start to put it into more context such that you're, you're, you're socialized to the different configurations that that skill yeah. could take. And now you're ready. You're, you're much more ready to practice in a real environment. And, uh, yeah, go ahead, Mary. You know, um, so Damien, I, I, I think that's a really interesting um, position and have a ton of respect for Roger Newbone's work. So let's stay, stick with um, Foley insertion. And, you know, having been a nursing instructor who's taking nursing, nursing students through this, Foley insertion is not taught in one session. So the zone one Foley insertion activity can actually be multiple sessions. And it is incredibly challenging to teach a human being who's never been in medical, in the medical world before, how to put on sterile gloves. And so there has to be a moment where the psychomotor part of where do I put my hands, how do I open this package? It just has to be done in isolation, very quickly followed by then, and we're still in zone one saying, okay, now we're gonna take this kit and we're gonna walk over to this bed and you're gonna put the Foley catheter into this task trainer. But as you're doing it, I wanna hear how you would explain it to the patient. So that can all happen in zone one, but I still believe that it is best to like get the hand and neurological coordination done and then start to bring in the communication pieces. So, so I, think, I think that that both can still be done in, in zone one. And I agree with Roger that disconnecting any procedure from the patient that it's being done on is a terrible idea. And so all of that does need to happen in zone one. And you know, the other, the other thing that occurred to me, Chris, as you were explaining, is that if we went back to that diagram of the zones, Chris very purposely has dotted lines between the zones and not solid lines because it's not always a super bright line between the zones, but you know, like any other continuum or progression, you're moving from zone one into zone two into zone three, sort of on a continuously developmental pathway. And so sometimes it's not really super clear of like, this is only zone two or this is only zone one. It's there, it's a continuum. I was, I was thinking about, um, there's a great question that, that says, how can we show our organizations the value of investing time and resources into programs like these? And I, I guess the, the first thing that I'll say to that is this language is entirely created to allow you to connect better with the organization. So the use of this language to create partnerships, the use of readiness plans, if you can manage to get that one meeting and say, hey, let's, let's create a readiness plan together. Um, talk about your people, talk about your problems, talk about what you worry about the most, and let's create a plan, a training-based plan or a learning-based plan to get your people ready to do the things that are most important to you. And now this can really help you create that connection to the important partners and the budget and the funding is what comes next from that, that, that very powerful connection and the understanding of, of value that can come from readiness planning and from the use of simulation. You know, I, I'm seeing a couple of questions. I see we don't have much time left, but there are a couple of questions about, so how do you evaluate readiness? And 
I guess I want to answer that by saying there is no one answer to that, that it, you know, it really depends on what you're trying to achieve. And so readiness might be measured um, in a hospital uh, during a new nurse's orientation by um, assessing that person on, on the skills that are particularly important to the patient population that nurse is caring for. Um, in a hospital, it may be driven by quality and safety data um, that would come from, from the quality department. So there are multiple different ways to evaluate this readiness. And I think a lot of the evaluation tools are going to be situationally based, Chris, and, and have some rigorous development at the point of care. How yeah. do you see it? I agree. You know, if you feel like you're developing the readiness measures alone as the SIM program, then you know that you're not partnering completely because um, it's really the partner who has the idea of what it means for them to be ready. So you can really work with your partners to come up with the measurements that are important to them. How, how do they know that the residents are ready to practice? How do they know that the nurses are ready to work on the floor or in the unit? And you can use those metrics that you develop together. And it can, it can be very lonely to try to develop those readiness metrics as the SIM program alone. Damien, um, is this a good moment for us to click through the last few slides and let folks know what's coming? Yeah, I think we ought to transition to that. Um, and so I uh, appreciate how you have taken us through these ideas and also answered some of the questions from the Q&A. For uh, many of you, uh, you're already well along the path of using the sim zones or and or um, immersive simulation in that zone three and zone four with debriefing techniques and and for others of you this is the beginning so if you're um, already down the path and you're thinking about how to craft the value proposition for your program next week's weekly webinar is going to be a pretty small intimate workshop that um, for that reason will have a cost associated with it and uh, we think this would be very beneficial for leaders of simulation programs who are in this um, post-COVID moment, trying to really make sure that they are strategic and effective. Um, and for others of you who are developing uh, your practice and the work with uh, incorporating simulation into both educational programs and healthcare organizations, we'd like to invite you to take some next steps with us at the Center for Medical Simulation, whether it's by uh, working with myself, Chris, Mary, others on the team on a personalized consult, uh, a series of coaching sessions, or joining one of our courses. We'd like for you to uh, reach out to us and uh, we'd love to do a partnership with you to understand your current gaps and what might uh, you need for your own readiness. So we'd um, really like to make sure that we're very uh, available and so you can follow the QR code you can reach us through the web page. You can also find us on Twitter and uh, through the other social media networks. And we do hope that we get to work with you further. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join this webinar, spend an hour with us learning and connecting. And we hope it's the beginning um, of working together. Thank you very much and have a great day. Thank, Thank you everyone. everyone.